All right, well, how we're going to do this, I'm going to kind of moderate for us and uh, ask the questions as these three gentlemen have uh, labored throughout the last uh, quarter here to, um, to work through the issues of Reformation worship. Um, I do want to say that if your question isn't addressed today, uh, it's because either we ran out of time or it's a question that's a little more complex that the elders want to think through a little bit more collectively together before we answer with a unified voice. Um, so we will answer those questions. One of the things that we've done in the past when we've had a Q&A and we haven't been able to get to all the questions is we have a, a session at some later point in the next couple of weeks where we can meet together and answer the rest of those questions and then post them on the, uh, on the website. Um, so that's something that we've done in the past. If we don't get to all the questions, we do want to honor the questions that came in and, uh, and answer those. So uh, don't be upset with us if we don't get to your question today. I thought it would be good to start off with the uh, guys. First of all, thank you guys for, for teaching through the class. Uh, very uh, and informative, thought-provoking. Um, but I thought it would be good just to generally ask you guys, what was or what were some of the things that you were uh, challenged by, encouraged by in the lessons that you guys particularly uh, worked through? Well, I think for me, the, the class on um, uh, reading and public worship, um, just seeing the how uh, just historically uh, the reform view on reading and public worship and scripture reading and other readings as well, creedal readings, uh, confessional readings, um, there was a there was a unique um, emphasis, of course, on reading the Word of God, and it wasn't just sort of something in the order of events just to sort of fill space, but um, it was. It was, it was seen as something that was, that was lofty. It was the word of God being read. And I think for me, it just reminded me and encouraged me and it challenged me again to um, give thought to the public reading of scripture as it is God's word that's being read for the feeding of his sheep um, and uh, not to sort of see it as something that can easily be passed over or it's just a, a place filler, but um, it has a place in the worship service as it is the word of God being read. So I think for me that was something that was challenging and encouraging, just to remind me again of that. Amen. Yeah, for me, uh, <clears throat> I remember hearing back the uh, the sessions on prayer. I think was good um, with the different categories of prayer um, that is seen in Scripture. First and foremost, um, I thought that was that was really um, insightful, um, and it helped me to categorize it. Um, even as I think through how I pray, um, how I deal with public prayer um, when, we, when we do it uh, during the worship service. So, uh, yeah, for me, the, the prayer uh, session was probably the most uh, insightful. Good. Okay. I would say uh, <clears throat> I was encouraged in teaching uh, the uh, classes on biblical theology of worship from uh, Old Testament to New Testament. And just seeing uh, the continuity in what respect between between that, um, but particularly seeing Christ's fulfillment of so much of what the old covenant uh, worship uh, pointed to, and uh, just realizing what we are a part of now with uh, 
but to inaugurate eschatology with the reality of, of Christ having entered into the most holy place in heaven and um, opened the way for us uh, as we gather to worship uh, in his presence. So I think in terms of encouragement, I would say that in terms of challenge, um, I have to say in reference to the class on prayer, um, just the continual challenge to have um, a scripture saturated um, corporate prayer to, to, to let the scripture inform and fill the content of our prayers. And I think the challenge there is um, twofold. Just kind of all of life preparation that the scripture fills your heart and mind. But, but more particular preparation for, for the Lord's Day prayers. Right, right. Very good. Okay, now we'll go ahead and jump into the questions that you guys have asked. These are in no particular order necessarily in the way that they, uh, they came in. Uh, but one question asks, few in the Reformed world disagree with the claim that creeds, confessions, and catechisms are valuable to distill the apostolic faith. Where there is disagreement is whether creeds, confessions, and catechisms have a place in public worship. Where do our elders stand? May we read these resources in the worship service. Does God command us to do so? Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I dealt with uh, the regulative principle of worship in my in uh, my class, in one of my classes, and I'm sure we all we've all um, dealt with that in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I know some have argued from Deuteronomy 26 that there is a there is a real example of the people of God coming together and um, speaking a confession before the Lord that was actually part of the uh, the uh, worship of, of the people of God um, some some have argued from that I, I would probably say that I would, I would want to look at that more carefully um, but just to answer the question I would say that I, I don't think that um, reading a creed or reciting a creed is essential to the worship uh, of the people of God, especially now in the New Testament. I do think it's helpful in a lot of ways. I think, uh, I think one of the benefits of it is that it's an expression of our unity uh, doctrinally, that the people of God can recite a creed or a confession, especially the, uh, the historic creeds that really deal with uh, the essential elements of um, or the essential doctrines that uh, make us Christian and when the church gathers together and is able to say it in one voice I think it's profound I think it um, I think it uh, exemplifies the unity of the church uh, but it, but as far as it being an essential aspect of the worship um, I don't I don't think that's necessarily the case I don't think that it has to be part of the worship service I know in different reformed churches some do some abstain from doing that nevertheless they would still hold to these creeds because they believe that these are examples of what this of this what the scripture teaches um, but but I think there's room for disagreement there I think that in some churches it may be beneficial and some some churches uh, you know they they prefer to stay away from it but right that's just some thoughts I think um, in, in my class, I dealt with that a little bit as well. Um, and I think uh, 
Baptists, Reformed Baptists, have held to um, some of the, the ancient creeds, the Athanasian Creed, Nicene Creed, um, as they see these as um, really a part of, I think, in some sense, what it means to uh, teach and exhort. Um, not that the creeds and confessions themselves are scripture, of course, we're not saying that, but it's been a way to teach some of the essential tenets of the faith. Um, so not as necessary for corporate worship, but as Pastor Will said, extremely helpful. Um, it's, a, it's another way to explain scripture and showing that wider agreement with the historic Reformed Church. And so we stand on the shoulders of men who came before us and men who came before them. And I think teaching uh, and confessing these creeds is a way for us to show that, that um, uh, unity with the church and it's a way to, to, to catechize the church, yeah. um, to, to teach the church the ancient truths of the, uh, um, ancient truths of the faith um, in a way that's summarized and, and helpful. So um, yeah, some, some churches would hold to that more strongly, some, some would not, but um, I think it's, it, it's not essential, but extremely helpful for catechizing and teaching and for the encouragement of our faith. Yeah, I would concur on that, and um, I, I guess just maybe try to simply say in terms of the ministry of the Word and, and teaching the truths of Scripture and the content of Scripture, um, that that can be well done in that form. So um, as an element of, of teaching the Word, uh, it, it can fill that in a particular form, but the form itself isn't, isn't unnecessary. Yeah, and I was just thinking with the question, may we read these resources in the worship service? We have done that um, from time to time with the 1689 in particular. Um, if it is working together with something that's going to be brought out in the sermon, we find it particularly helpful to be able to read that together and uh, further cement into our minds the truths that are going to be expounded on. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you, guys. All right. Next question. <clears throat> Knowing that the church is always needing guidance and always should be reforming, <clears throat> why are we not including current events into the sermon? I would understand a balance, keeping to a steady focus exposition of the word, but the church needs constant shepherding, especially in times like this. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll jump it into this one. <laughs> First, I think it's most uh, appropriate probably for, uh, for me. So uh, current events, I would say, um, is a slippery slope. And not that those things can't be addressed, but we could preach on current events every week, really, if we wanted to, because there's always enough information out there that needs to be uh, addressed at some level. The question is, does it warrant either a specific sermon from the pulpit, or does it deserve further application um, into a, a sermon. And I, I think there are times where some monumental type of things happen where it is helpful um, to bring that into a sermon or for it to be a sermon in and of itself. Um, but in, in my mind, there are a couple levels there. One is just the current events from a social standpoint, um, which there are a multitude of things. I mean, if you just scroll back through the news events from this week. I mean, you would have a list of, you know, a million different things that you could, you could talk about. 
The other aspect of it is when current events start to touch on the church um, and the evangelical church more at large, and then, and then is it impacting us as a local community? So there are various levels um, on that. So uh, yeah, when I read that question, I thought it's a, it's, a, it's a very good question and it challenges me a little bit um, in that regard of wanting to be able to discern what's appropriate to either address as a sermon in itself or to bring in application uh, with the various nuances that would come with that. So I, I would say whoever asked that question and for everybody else in general, just I, for me in particular, just pray for discernment for me as I try to think through those, uh, think through those things um, and navigate that. And as we as elders discuss these things, um, how to apply that if it's appropriate to do so at any given, any given point. I know that some, some within the Reformed community I've, I've heard, um, you know, kind of have the mindset of, uh, you know, something big happens on a Wednesday afternoon, right? And there's an expectation that something's going to be said from the pulpit on Sunday based on whatever that event was on Wednesday afternoon. And some guys have taken the mindset of, you know, well, what are you going to preach this Sunday? And he said, well, whatever the next section is in the text. Um, that I'm looking at. And I think there is a valid point to that, that we want to allow the Word of God to uh, continue on as we were going expositionally through a, a passage. But at the same time, I think there are times where you can step back and say, do I have, number one, do I have enough time to say something <laughs> uh, at, at this stage? Or is this something maybe a couple weeks down the road that we can address in a larger, a larger scale? So um, there is thought that goes into it. I'm not saying personally that I always execute that thought uh, the best way. Um, so I covet your prayers on that. I'll let these guys kind of chime in on anything else, if there is anything else. Um, I have a, just a thought. Um, so I think when it comes to current events, like if we say, well, um, we there are times to address major I don't know, political events that might influence the church, the question becomes, well, what is major? Um, what's influence? How do you determine how it influences the church? Um, and I think when those things happen, so the first question is how to categorize those things. The second question, at least in my mind, is um, uh, is, the, is the sermon the only uh, context in which certain things can be addressed? So I think um, the prayer, uh, as the church prays, uh, the, the pastoral prayer, the prayer before the service, those different uh, times where we pray is a time to address certain things. And just praying that the Lord would do you know, his good work in these certain areas, um, praying that you know, the Lord would, would carry out his will. Um, it doesn't always have to be a sermon that um, allows the church to acknowledge certain things. Uh, the church does that best through the form of prayer. Um, I can see the wisdom of, you know, addressing certain certain issues, but I'm just I'm thinking about the first part of this question, or that the church is always needing guidance and always should be reforming. Um, it it seems to me, and I think this is true, that the church is seen to be reforming, and the guidance that the church uh, gives and uh, applies is by the church really doing what the church has always done. And in a culture that's moving so fast um, with the tide of different cultural ideologies, something that stays still in a river of rushing and flowing thought stands out. 
And I think the church does that by continuing to give itself to the ordinary means of grace, preaching of the word, prayer of the saints. That doesn't mean that there are times where we can address things, but I think that in thinking about this first part of this question, the church needing guidance and always reforming, I think the church has always done that um, primarily by um, giving itself to those ordinary and plain things that the church does week in, week out. Because um, that is sort of countercultural for a, where, a world that's moving further and further away from biblical truth. Um, so those are just some, some thoughts that I have. Is the church holding to the old paths is countercultural. And I think the church can address some um, political things, major political things, and the prayer format um, rather than always the sermon, like a sermon given to it. So those are just some, some thoughts I have. Any other thoughts? Okay. All right, next question is, is the Sabbath, or Lord's Day, a church discipline issue? In other words, if it is in fact a moral law obligation, then breaking it would be a sin, would it not? So would continual neglect and persistence in breaking be a reason to put one out of the church? Why do I hear the answer in that question? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Sure, I'll answer it. Um, yeah, I think <clears throat> I think uh, any moral law obligation um, and breaking that would be a sin. Um, I think the, the the problem. So let me answer that plainly. Yes, I would say yeah, it is a sin and it should be addressed. Um, but I think the problem is that most people who asked asked this question. I'm not I'm not trying to um, think about the motives of the person who, who asked the question, but usually people who, um, who want a black and white answer regarding the, the Lord's Day Sabbath and, and the, uh, and the uh, desecrating the Sabbath, uh, they, they usually want to conclude immediately that if the person has not come to, uh, to church that they are violating the Sabbath. Uh, they want to make those assumptions right away. So the, to answer the question specifically, of course, if you break the fourth commandment, it, it's, uh, it needs to be dealt with as sin, and we want to counsel that person, we want to help that person uh, see the importance of coming together with the body of Christ. But it's important also to know that not every situation that seems like a violation of that commandment is a violation of that commandment. So it requires the wisdom from the pastors yeah. to to speak with that person, to see yeah. what's going on and, and what's going on in their schedule. Yeah. Yeah. All right, good, thank you. That's, that's helpful. Okay, um, jumping to the next uh, question here, a couple, couple questions on the Lord's Supper. Um, this is, again, in no particular order. Um, how, how should we prepare for the Lord's Supper? In other words, what, what should we be thinking about as we come into the uh, worship service on the Lord's Day? And in particular, should we be thinking about the Lord's Supper in our own hearts? Yeah, so... Uh... <laughs> 
I was looking at, uh, as I was thinking about that question, even in preparation for my class on the Lord's Supper, uh, the, the Baptist Catechism actually gives us a really good, um, helpful, and biblical um, guidance and instruction on how to prepare oneself for the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I'll read, I'll read the question. It's question number 104, which is, what is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? And the answer is, it's required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body. And that's based off of 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29. Of their faith to feed upon him, that's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Of their repentance, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. Of love, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. And new obedience, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. Lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. And that is based off of 1 Corinthians 11, 28, and 29. The, these are biblical steps on how to prepare one's heart when it comes to approaching and, and taking the Lord's Supper, participating in the Lord's Supper. Um, and I would, I would suggest going beyond uh, the Baptist Catechism, but if you pick up the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, it's a bigger breakdown. Obviously, it's a larger catechism, but it's a bigger breakdown of that same doctrine. Uh, and if you look at uh, questions 170 through 175, I would recommend that you read that and you meditate on it. Um, the scripture references are there. Uh, it is packed with... Um, scripture references where you can see that the instruction that's given there in Westminster Larger Catechisms 170 through 175 is uh, one of the best um, explanations or guidance for preparation of, of, of your heart before coming to the table. So, yeah. I would um, just add a, a reference that I thought was really helpful. Um, it's a book in remembrance of him uh, profiting from the Lord's Supper. Um, and there's a chapter in this book. So it's by um, some 17th century um, reform guys. Um, and um, it's, there's a chapter in here or a section that's really helpful. And it talks about how to prepare oneself for the Lord's Supper. It talks about when you come into the service, how to prepare your heart. When you arise to walk towards the elements, how to prepare your heart. Um, when you're walking to the table, when you're eating, how to what should what should you be thinking on, um, and as you're as you're concluding the Lord's Supper time, what should you be thinking on? This is just really helpful. Um, but I just wanted to read just a just a couple sentences here. Um, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, as we prepare for eating and drinking, it says we must not rely upon or not rely only upon having prepared ourselves well but rather think little of ourselves and derive our liberty only from the sacrifice of Christ through whom we have secured free access to God, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by faith in him. And so what they're saying there is, uh, it's, you actually prepare better by thinking little or less of yourself. Um, you prepare better by thinking more upon the work of Christ and what he has done, and that's how one prepares their, their hearts 
primarily. Yes, we ought to be considering ourselves and any sin that we have committed, brothers we've offended, um, but even in that, we're doing that with an eye to Christ. So um, I thought that was really, really helpful. Okay, and, and then maybe following up on that question, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, where it takes about, where it talks about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, uh, that the question is, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Maybe you can speak to that specifically from the context of 1 Corinthians 11, and then maybe some broader uh, application. I'll go ahead and read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse uh, 28. Uh, I'll start with 27. <clears throat> it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. goes further in uh, 33 so then my brothers when you come together to eat wait for one another if anyone is hungry let him eat at home so that when you come together it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come uh, Paul has a, a strong concept of communion in this passage He's thinking twofold. He's thinking, number one, that the Lord's Supper is first and foremost communion with Christ. Uh, and this is why in my class I try to emphasize it as strongly as possible um, so that we would get away from the unbiblical idea or concept that what you're participating in is just a, a mere ritual or a mere um, point of the worship service where we're just uh, remembering an event from the past but it, it is a real spiritual ordinance and so much so that when done incorrectly when done unworthily uh, Paul says that some of you have gotten ill and some of you have fallen asleep some of you have died all that to say that the the uh, the the manner in which uh, a person takes it unworthily is if he doesn't discern first and foremost the communion with Christ right discerning the body means um, recognizing that at the Lord's table what is to be uh, remembered what is to be um, received by faith is the broken body and the shed blood of Christ not in any corporal way you're not receiving any of his actual flesh we know that he's physically in heaven at the right hand of the father but you're receiving the benefits of of the body the broken body and shed blood of Christ at that very moment you're communing with that and uh, you're participating 
in uh, a communion with, with the risen, risen Lord. That also has implications with um, your brothers whom you commune with as well at that moment of taking the Lord's Supper. It, number one, it speaks about your union with Christ, but it also speaks about your union with each other. And there are ways that you can take it unworthily as you, as you reflect on your communion with Christ, and there are ways that you can take it unworthily as you reflect on your communion with each other, because they go hand in hand. Uh, if you have sinned against your brother and you haven't reconciled, the scripture teaches to, to leave those gifts and offerings at the altar, go reconcile first with your brother, then come back and, and offer these things. Uh, so that, that's in the scope of what Paul is trying to um, communicate here, that we have to be right with our brothers because it says something about our communion with Christ, and we have to be right with Christ because it says something about our communion with Christ. So I think that's one out of a few other things that can be said about um, taking the supper in an unworthy manner. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if anyone else wants to... Looking at, again, the context here, First Corinthians 11, um, there is a strong focus on the communal aspect of, of the body of Christ together, um, and um, particularly in, in, in the love or lack of love that one has for another, um, and this is seen in this case, the lack of it, um, that Paul's addressing here, and um, he starts out in verse 17 saying, well, these follow instructions. I, I do not commend you. Um, and he then says down in verse 30, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. And his explanation is, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? So, so um, yeah, this was a communal meal in which you know the, the Lord's Supper celebration was taking place. But you had um, disunity here. You had um, those with much enjoying much and those with little going hungry. Um, and and Paul says, I can't commend you. This is this, this is not how you celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's not not what's going on. Um, and. Um, and then after the portion that Pastor Will read, he, uh, he comes back and, well, again, verse 33 says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, so before he said, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper, but now, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If one is hungry, let him eat at home. Um, so that those, those who have much, they can, they can eat at home, they can come, they can celebrate the Lord's Supper in, in, uh, in a way that... Uh, shows a mutual love and equality and, and mutual participation. Um, and uh, that is what he's commending to them. And, um, and in this he says, that it will not be for judgment when you come together. So this, this is the particular way that they were violating it um, in terms of their, their lack of love for one another, lack of concern for one another, lack of provision for one another. And um, there were factions among them based upon uh, wealth, based upon what, what some had and what, what others didn't have. So there was looking down on people, a neglect of people. And in general, if we come to the table with dispositions and attitudes like that toward our brothers and sisters, um, 
whether it's you know in matters of, of wealth or poverty or, or in anything else, um, then we're coming to the table in an unworthy manner. We're, we're not treating the body of Christ like we ought to, um, and we're showing contempt, um, as, as Paul says, for for the church. Um, and to come to the table, which is a symbol, among other things, of communion, um, and to do it with that kind of hypocrisy is, is to bring judgment on itself. That's good. Very good. Thank you for those answers. Helpful. All right, next question. Kind of thinking more broadly here about the whole class. Um, what are the worship practice changes being discussed by pastors at FBC? And what is being said about previous practices and sermons that supported our past practices? Um, and then a few ex examples are, are cited here. Um, reaching back to the class on the Lord's Supper, um, it was, sorry, I'm trying to read this. That class introduced the concept of using quote-unquote correct elements, for example, uh, wine in the Lord's Supper, uh, which is different than the uh, teaching and practice I have had over at FBC for years. Uh, example two, there's been talk about singing primarily psalms. So big, big picture and then a couple of things that this person heard in particular um, of changes that are, that are being made or being discussed. I'll, I'll start with the, uh, I'll start with the Psalms. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, <clears throat> I, I, I gave a, I gave a class or two classes rather on uh, singing and worship. And one thing I was hoping to communicate clearly um, was not only the theology of the Psalms and um, and a good case for why singing the Psalms is important in um, Christian worship, um, but I do want to say that this isn't a practice that is is really new to us. Uh, we've we've always, or at least for a long time, have included Psalm singing in our worship occasionally, um, and I think. Uh, being, as, as we prepared for, or as I prepared for this class, one of the things that stood out was um, how singing the Psalms uh, was very, it was predominant when it came to the singing of the church. It was, it was, it had more of a center, center place in the uh, singing and the worship of, of the people of God throughout history. Um, and so that, that was both challenging and encouraging. And so I guess the, the, the whole idea there, <clears throat> as far as uh, implementing something in the future, is, is simple. It's just, um, I, think, I think we all desire to sing more of the Psalms. Um, but it, it, it wasn't a case for exclusive psalmody, which is, um, I know certain, some churches practice just singing the Psalms. Um, one of the things that I, I tried to make clear was that I, I do think there is a case for singing um, other songs in Scripture. There's, there's, there's uh, Psalms that are that are seen in uh, the Gospel of Luke and uh, in Revelation. Uh, Revelation, I think, has 27 songs that are 
present there in that, in that book uh, that we can sing. And then also drawing from the theology of that, where <clears throat> you see in the book of Revelation that the songs that were being sung in heaven were, uh, in a sense, an extension from the songs of the Old Testament. Not, not only limited to the, sal- the Psalter, but other songs like the Song of Moses. These were extensions of that, and I think they were further um, elaborations or um, expositions even of some of those songs because they were more explicitly Christocentric. And so it kind of gives us a theology on how to choose music. And, um, and, and so again, when it comes to choosing music uh, for us as elders, as we try to shepherd the, the congregation in singing healthy and good music, we're gonna be choosing songs that, um, that follow that same theology, which is songs that um, uh, are founded from the biblical songs that are, that are present in the scriptures but also um, help further explain them um, by being more explicitly Christocentric and, um, yeah, and, and expressing some of that New Testament, uh, some of those New Testament realities that are true to us in uh, New Testament worship and in, in the New Covenant. So yeah, but as re- regarding change, um, I think we've already implemented some of that and we've been doing that for a while. So there's not, there's not uh, big changes in that area but I'd, ho- I'd hope to see more psalms. Yeah. Anybody else want to chime in on that? I, th- I think, too, one thing that's important to, to note in our discussions together, um, and I'm not saying that this is where the question was going, but in relationship to changes, um, right, you can... You can think of change in a couple ways. You can think of it as something replacing something else, um, which isn't what we want to communicate. Um, Rather, it's the further inclusion of things that we think would be helpful um, and and heighten uh, just that aspect of worship that we are to have for our our God. So the singing of Psalms, uh, for example, would be certainly one of them. When I preached through the Psalm 119 series, we sang the stanza every week um, as we went through that. So there were 22 weeks of psalm singing, um, which was wonderful and really helped to kind of set our hearts for the exposition of that particular particular text. So as Will said, when when we think about songs in general, just from my perspective, as I'm looking at the text that I'm going to be preaching, I'm looking for themes, I'm looking maybe for specific phrases in that passage that are uh, mentioned in uh, a a psalm or a hymn um, or uh, a good modern version of a biblically rich song. Um, So yeah, so all of those things are kind of going on. I would see the changes that we're looking at being more expansive rather than replacing one with the with the other. Um, uh, as we've thought about prayers, um, we've thought about how to be more specific in those prayers. So, for example, with the pastoral prayer, you've probably noticed that that we have kind of a rotation of things that we're trying to pray for on a regular basis that the scriptures highlights. So we'll pray for the government. We'll pray for families. We'll pray for uh, singles. Um, so pray for the leadership 
um, other churches, uh, things of that nature. So just trying to be more intentional with incorporating uh, more of those things into the uh, to the worship service. So, um, yeah. All right. We talked about um, reading corporate worship. What we could include into the corporate worship. What um, aspects of the confession, um, ancient creeds, Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, um, as those things. Um, fit within uh, the service, uh, are connected with, with the sermon, um, or just the, you know, um, just overall for the church's uh, health and strength and faith. Um, so those are things that we were thinking through as well. How could we incorporate those in into the service? So, um, yeah, those, those are some things too. Yeah, by the way, too, I, I want to mention that <clears throat> I know uh, in my interaction with in a, a few weeks ago, um, you know, I, I know there there has so someone mentioned this, and I've heard this too in other other settings as well, of the fear of um, including certain elements in the in the worship service that um, for some people may seem like this is a, a return to Rome or a return to some sort of formality um, in in the worship service. But I want to say that. Um, that based off of the class that we gave here with all the elements that we discussed, there's nothing more anti-Rome than everything that we've been talking about in this, in this class. And that includes the discussion on the, the elements, that includes the, uh, the discussion that we've had on singing and, and even our understanding of prayer and all those elements in, that uh, we want to see included in the worship service. There's no, nothing more distinctly Protestant <laughs> about the things that we are teaching and promoting, but, but even more than that, um, I know it was the case for me that my my uh, my attempt as as I was formulating my classes, I tried to lean heavy on exegetical work, and I did this. I did that with the Lord's Supper. Uh, so when if you if you weren't here for my Lord's Supper class, um, if you go back to the audio, or, or hopefully we'll we'll get that out to you, or if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. But my my. My push was to lean heavy on exegesis because I, I'm not, uh, the positions that we're convinced about is not, um, it, it, it are not positions that are um, mainly based on history, although that's, that's heavy and that's present there and that needs to be considered. But a lot of it is exegetical work. It's a, it, these are convictions that are coming from Scripture. And the argument or the pushback, I, I say, is that there, there, there is a mainstream assumption that, uh, that to be more biblical is to be what is often understood uh, as what's being practiced in just the, the, uh, the mainstream, typical mainstream evangelical church. Uh, the churches that seem like they don't have structure or liturgy, that seems to be the most spiritual. Um, but but that's, that's a problem because the churches that seem more authentic and on the spot without form are churches filled with form, filled with structure. And, and this is the guiding principle of those structures. The guiding principle of those structures are emotions, are spontaneity. And those are principles that, were the, that the reformers try to push, up, push against. In other words, those, those churches that are more free in their worship services are more like Rome 
than the things that we're trying to push and promote. We're trying to push and promote order, structure, thoughtful, uh, thoughtfulness in each of the elements uh, of, the, uh, of the worship service. And we want each of them to be guided heavily on exegesis, on scripture. And, you know, as we look back at uh, Reformed worship, it seems like they, uh, they really honed in on the scriptures. Uh, so all that to say is, if you think that it's better to be loose with these things, to be more spontaneous with these things, to be less formal, um, and what I mean by formal is thoughtful in the specific uh, elements of worship, uh, then, then that is really a road back to Rome, <laughs> where what you see in the worship service is just pure invention of man, um, where we're, want, we're wanting to root every element in Scripture, and that's the goal for this whole class. Anyway, that was my sermon. <laughs> Appreciate that. Very good. Um, okay, the, the next question here, and Pastor Will, you kind of hit on this a little bit, but maybe we can maybe we can flesh this out a little bit regarding corporate singing. Um, the question was, what, what role influence should the songs in Revelation? You had mentioned those yeah. influence the content of the songs sung in church. So. I, I think maybe to nuance that a little bit as well, yeah. the thought there of the, the progress of redemptive history yeah. and Christ coming and fulfilling uh, the covenant, yeah. and then the expansion of what we see there in Revelation of celebrating what Christ did there. How, how should that manifest itself in our Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's such a good question. Um, very, very good question. Um, and in fact, I would say that the songs found in Revelation and also the songs that you see in Luke, um, I think makes a good case for why we don't have to be confined to just the Psalter, for example. So that's one, one thing. Um, but, but even more insightful than that, uh, I would say that the songs in Revelation expand antece uh, antecedent revelation. They, they take what was there in the Psalter, they take what was there in Moses' songs, and they further elaborate on them. They, they make them songs that are more expi explicitly Christocentric. They don't do away with those songs, but what they do is they make them more specific. Right. And I think, I think that's, a, that's a helpful um, theology and a helpful guide for how, for what liberties we have as far as um, how we choose music, where we can, we can pick a song or a hymn that isn't a psalm, um, but is an explanation of it or an explanation of the truths that are there. And we can still say this song here is uh, teaching the word of God. It's, it's speaking the word of God. We're singing the word of God in some sense. Some people don't like that because they think, well, unless we're singing the specific words in our ESV or NASB, uh, then you, you're not really singing uh, the word of God. And, and uh, of course there is a difference, and I want to make sure that, that that's clear. There is a difference between singing the words straight from the Bible, and I think that there is a lot of benefit to that. Um, but I don't think it's a violation of that regulative principle of worship if you sing songs that the theology matches the, what, we, what we have in Scripture. And it's helpful in a lot of ways where, uh, as I mentioned in my class, uh, hymns were written based off of, of the songs of scripture, but they were, they were sung with more explicitity. That's even a real word. 
explicitness. Uh, and, and, and one of the, the uses of it was it helped the church sing in one accord and it pushed back against the heresies that were present in their day. So when we sing holy, 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 yeah. um, God in three persons, blessed yeah. trinity, we're differentiating ourselves from Mormons and from uh, Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, yet we're singing biblical truth, and I yeah. think that I think that the Book of Revelation. I think there's about 27 or 28 songs there that model that for us. Yeah. That they, they, there. Uh, I think scholars say that there's almost an exact, like parallel with some of the songs of the Old Testament. Um, you can see similarities in what the angels are singing in, in Revelation and how it matches with some of the songs that were sung in temple worship. And again, it just goes with that, that idea that the songs there in Revelation are just further um, explicit elaborations of, of antecedent Revelation. Yeah. So anyway, hope that helps. But it was, that was a good question. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great. There are a couple of places in Revelation where you see, um, you, you see it say, and they sang a new song, worthy, worthy, worthy. And then you'll see somewhere else talking about this same sort of choral in heaven where it says, and they sang the song of Moses. Yeah. So how is it a new song and a song of Moses? Yeah. Uh, they were singing old truths about the triune God. Yeah. And so it wasn't about the, the, the instrument or anything like that. It was about the theology of the song. One calls it new, one calls it the song of Moses. Um, and so both, both are there, both brought out something about the attributes of God. Um, and so to, to that point, um, what we're singing as distinct from other sort of uh, religions or traditions is we're trying to draw out in scripture what's there. God's blueprint is there for that. Um, and then there are other songs that supplement psalm singing in different ways that draw that same theology and those attributes of God. I think that's what we're trying to move uh, towards. And again, this isn't for the sake of just saying we sing the psalms. Um, it's for the edification of the Christian. It's for our own soul's um, health and growth in our triune God. So these things are given by God for the good of his people, not just for formality or to check off a list, but for our own growth and health and maturity in the faith. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Okay. All right. Well, we're just about at 10 o'clock, so we're going to stop there. There or probably another half a dozen or so questions that we had come into us. So we will take some time here um, in the next couple of weeks and seek to answer those and get those uploaded onto the uh, website. We'll notify you guys when we do um, in the uh, upcoming Sunday school classes. So um, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll dismiss. Father, we do thank you for this time to uh, think more specifically about um, worship and to understand more deeply what it means to worship our God in spirit and in truth. And so we, we pray, Father, going forward uh, that you would help us to do that, um, to give serious thought to these things. We desire to magnify your infinite worth, to enjoy our triune God and all that has been accomplished for us and for our salvation. So we thank you for that. Uh, be with us now as we prepare for our gathering together as your people in the main worship service. And uh, Father, we just pray that your name would be lifted up and would be exalted. 
thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen.